friends, and welcome to Because CONCACAF, the sleep-deprived podcast where we break down all the action and all the craziness from the Confederation of North and Central American and Caribbean Associations of Football, and sometimes the rest of the world, too. With Don Palumbo, I'm Andy Lohman, and we give away some trophies this weekend. Amidst conflict and trauma with their coach and federation, the supremely talented Spain beat England 1-0 in a beautiful performance to claim their first ever Women's World Cup. And the otherworldly talent that is Lionel Messi won arguably the most prestigious trophy of his career, the inaugural Leagues Cup, as Inter-Miami defeated Nashville SC in a penalty shootout in a match that encapsulated everything wonderful and chaotic about CONCACAF. Dom, what were your big takeaways from these two blockbuster finals? Um, I really picked the perfect match to watch my first Leagues Cup match this year from start to finish. Um, I will say I'm almost disappointed in myself that I didn't follow it closer, but life and trying to follow 900 things at once can, can unfortunately do that to you, but that was a great match. And, um, I mean, the women's world cup final was fine. Um, it, I think it, it was the, the women's world cup as a whole, I think has been so incredible that, um, it's easy for a match like that to almost feel like a letdown. But to me, it was just kind of like. Um, I guess I'll equate it to like a fast food game. Like, you know, it was kind of a final that you could expect. Um, it's the kind of game that you often get in finals just because both teams are, I guess, have such a desire to not screw anything up that they end up not doing too, too much. Anyway, I will say I did miss the first like 35 minutes because I turned the match on and immediately fell back asleep. Um, so to those of you that were able to stay awake, kudos to you because I could not do it. But uh, most of the second half felt like a brawl, but kudos to Spain. I mean, they were I think they were easily the best and most consistent team um, throughout the competition. They obviously had their little hiccup against Japan in the group stage, but um the resolve of those players, I think, is something that you don't often see in any sport. And to see them achieve what they what they did, um, I hope we take nothing away from the players and everything away from that federation. Two two things that came to mind when when you when you were uh, giving your thoughts on, on the subject of like the league's cup, I think it kind of snuck up on you and I. I mean, and a lot of people. It's the first ever competition. I don't think anyone really knew what to expect. Um, and it helps that when you have like the greatest player of all time just kind of dropped into the fold right before it begins and it becomes this like huge powder keg moment and like global phenomenon. I am really excited for it moving forward. Like I I, I always enjoyed the idea of it. Like when it first came out, I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be cool. But I didn't like personally like really put the time away because I was really locked down the Women's World Cup. But now, like moving forward, I'm all in on Leagues Cup every year. Hopefully it lives up to just like the craziness. I will year. say right before we hopped on here, I was scrolling through Twitter and it doesn't look like Leagues Cup is leaving the U.S. It looks like next year they're going to do a very similar format with every match in America again. They just may do more neutral site type of matches, um, hmm. which is kind of a shame. Um, because Don Garber, quote unquote, does not want it to become the Champions Cup, and that's to me is like a really lame excuse <laughs> for not wanting yeah. any competitive balance. Um, I think on one hand it's a good thing because I think you mentioned it uh on Thursday, you know, like. <laughs> 
arguably the most watched league in America on TV for soccer is Liga MX. Um, there's a ton of um, fans of a ton, of a lot of those clubs in this country who, for a competition like this, it could be their first ever time getting to see that club in person. So I get some of the appeal of that, but like. Like it's the same reason Copa America will happen in the U.S. next year and happened in 2016. But yeah, I mean, I, to I, your point, just from like a competitive balance enjoyability but, standpoint, it would be. Cool I guess, to I, but I guess the, the difference is, is like, think about Monterey. Like, how many MLS yep. clubs did they play on their way to the third place match? I mean, they they played what? Let like let's just say they played five MLS teams in seven matches. It may have been five. It may have been four. That's but, hold on. I have the Wikipedia page pulled up. They beat Real Salt Lake, beat Seattle Sounders in the group stage, then beat Portland Timbers, beat T Grace, beat LAFC, lost to Nashville. Okay, Boston. so they played in seven matches. They played six MLS teams in true road matches. Like in Copa America, like it's hosted in the U.S., but there's only one U.S. team in that competition, right? Like, oh, when- yeah, for sure. No, I'm only saying it from the standpoint of like you're getting the U.S. TV yes. eyes, the U.S. TV money, the U.S. crowd. I, I understand like, that's that. What the, the I understand is. it, yeah. but just from a pure competitive standpoint, like. Like, come on, man. Like, oh, I agree. Monterey was was one of the few seeded teams from Mexico. Like, they should be able, like LAFC, to have the advantage of if you're gonna play us, you have to come down here because we're that good. I I get that money and capitalism rules everything and that we don't always get that, but that's just Anyway, anyway, I, I am excited for next year's edition to actually follow it from start to finish, hopefully. Let's, it will be uh, really interesting now with the expanded CONCACAF Champions Cup when there are true road games, how that shakes out. Um, the other thing that popped into my head as you were talking, you mentioned like the little blip against Japan in the group stage for Spain. That was a 4 nothing loss. Yes. They lost 4 nothing in a World Cup and then won the World Cup. I yes. should have I should have looked this up. That has to be the big. I mean, it's very rare for teams to lose any games and manage to win a World Cup. I, I am assuming that's the biggest loss anyone has ever had to still come and actually win the thing. Like that's crazy. Yeah, I'm sure somebody's tweeted that somewhere because, as we the discussed, Paul well, as we discussed, yeah, Paul Carr blows your mind. Paul Carr blows your mind. Anyway, uh, as we discussed on Thursday, like the men lost to Switzerland in their first match at the 2010 World Cup in route to winning the thing. But I don't. And they I, were the first to ever do that. And that was like a one nil loss, I think. Right. On like the flukiest goal ever. Shall we talk about the the final, the Women's World Cup final from this morning? Uh, before we dive into the final, a brief word on the third place match between Sweden oh, yeah. and Australia. Uh, VAR awarded a penalty to the Swedes after Claire Hunt tripped up Stina Blackstenius in the box. Mackenzie Arnold dove the right way, but Fridolina Rolfo's penalty was perfect to the bottom right corner to put Sweden ahead 1-0 in the 30th minute. In the 62nd minute, Kosovari Aslani carried the ball through midfield, playing a through ball to Blackstenius. 
Lexinius got cut off in the box by Hunt, so she played a ball back to the top of the box where Aslani had continued her run, and she unleashed a first-time shot that rocketed inside the first the far post to double the Swedish lead at 2-0. Thanks to four more saves from outstanding goalkeepers, Akira Musovic, that would be the final score. Sweden has now picked up a medal at more World Cups than it hasn't. One silver and four bronzes for five total compared to four World Cups with that one. That's pretty crazy, even though they have not won one. Fourth place is the best ever finish at a World Cup for the Matildas, who looked just completely out of gas after the emotional semifinal loss to England. That matches their best ever Olympics finish from Tokyo. On to the final. We often see cagey starts to finals as teams you know, feel each other out before taking any chances. And while Spain and England struggled to find the final ball in the opening 15 minutes, the match was full of energy and action. But the Lionesses had the first real look at goal in the 16th minute as Rachel Daly laid a ball off for Lauren Hemp, whose shot rocked off the crossbar. Moments later, Olga Carmona played a ball across the face of goal that couldn't connect with Salma Paraguelo in the middle of the box, but found Alba Redondo free on the back post, forcing Mary Earps to slide across goal and make a point-blank save. It was Spain who controlled the balance of the match from there, uh, in the 29th minute, England re- right wing back Lucy Bronze ventured too far forward and lost possession in the middle of the field. Teresa Abayera switched the field to take advantage of the space vacated by Bronze. Then Mariona Caldente held it up to allow Carmona to make the overlapping run. And the left back ripped a shot inside the far post, her second goal in as many games to put Spain up 1-0. Her celebration, including showing off an undershirt that had a message on it, but she wrote it in thin black pen on a dark red shirt so nobody could tell what it said. Love to see that. Um, I have a lot of criticism for Fox's coverage, including an extended rant I'll go on later, but I will say Allie Wagner had a really good breakdown of this goal on the broadcast. Uh, the pair of her and American broadcasting legend, JP Delacamera, have actually been really enjoyable as a crew to me. Can, can I cut you off real quick and just say that sure. if there's anything that Fox got right, I love that JP Delacamera for the women's game is he is their A broadcaster. Um I think yeah. he's put in the time. I think he's very good at what he does. A lot of times his jargon may not be as fluid or as crisp as we may want it to be because he's very much like middle-aged American soccer dad at times. But I think I think he is an iconic voice with soccer in this country. And while I love John Strong, uh, JP is the one that deserved to be at the forefront of this competition. And I'm really, really glad that in each of the three editions that Fox has had this tournament, that they have given him um, that opportunity. So can, feel free to continue, but I just wanted to make sure I got that out. No, I agree. The world. I mean, you said it like in my mind, he's almost kind of like the voice of American soccer, like in the early two thousands, when you would get the rare MLS match, like on, national tv like it was jp del camera it was jp yep. del camera you know calling gold cups and calling world cups i mean the dude has been in the trenches since day one yeah he has such a good feel for the game and a good i think like historical knowledge of it and he's almost and this is this might be a stretch but he's almost like the doc emmerich of like american soccer in like some ways maybe not to like the level of you know oh. I mean, I think Incredible for people language and like metaphors and stuff, but I mean, I think for people like you and me, he is. And um, maybe like an Al, an Al Michaels might be a better. Yeah, that that's comparison. probably a better, better comparison. But feel free to continue. I just had to get that out into the universe. No, I agree. 
Uh, the last kick of the first half came from Paraguelo. She snapped a shot from Onya Batie's cross that glanced off the post. La Roja continued to apply pressure in the second half, and Caldente curled a shot in the 50th minute to the bottom corner that forced Herbs to go low to get a hand to it. England's best chance of the second half came in the 54th as Chloe Kelly got a ball on the right wing and curled in across behind the Spanish back line that a lunging hemp sent wide to the post. Midway through the second half, VAR identified a handball and Kira Walsh in the box, and Spain was awarded a penalty and a chance to double its lead. But Erps dove decisively to the bottom right corner to deny Jenny Hermoso, and the cameras picked her, picked up her yelling a very fired up fuck off right after the save and sticking her tongue out once the ball was cleared. You need your goalie to be a little crazy, and Erps brought just an incredible energy to this match. I loved it. There wasn't in the ma- much in the match after that, though. Uh, Lauren James, back from suspension, had a shot tipped over the bar with 13 minutes of stoppage after a number of players went down with injuries. And in the second of those minutes, Batier had a hard and low shot kicked away by Erps at the near post. Katakoi snagged one final corner kick out of the air in the final whistle blue, giving Spain a 1-0 win in the World Cup final. Again, this is Spain's first ever World Cup final win. They become the fifth nation to ever win this competition. The United States still leads the world with four titles, followed by Germany's two. La Roja is now tied with tied for third with Norway and Japan with one apiece. This is also the best ever finish for England, building on a third-place medal from 2015. Again, I'm, I, I'm convinced I missed probably the best portions of this match sleeping, which is just shameful for me, but... It is what it is. Life be like that sometimes. Um, I saw it on a number of comments this morning after the match ended. Um, it was amazing after getting shellacked by Japan, seeing Spain's back line easily become a, almost a fortress throughout the knockouts. Like they got better and better with each match. Um, and you're going to talk about their ability to counter press and the, the way they just kind of suffocated England today. I mean, even when England was really pushing for some of those chances late, a lot of them, really all of them, you could say, except maybe James's shot that was tipped over the bar were half chances at best. Um, never did it feel like Spain was out of control. Never did they look rushed or frightened of the moment. Um, and unfortunately, say what you want about their manager, but he clearly got something right tactically uh, today. And as shameful as that may be in the long run for that federation and for um, women's soccer moving forward, um, it was nice to see and player wise, the team that deserved to win, win the whole thing. Um, so yeah, it was a dog fight for most of the second half, but the team that deserved to win won. And I think that overall is a good thing. Yeah, it is ironic with how much shit we've talked about Jorge Vilda. I mean, Spain, I mean, really dominated the tactical battle. Yeah, I mean, the, the counter press was incredible. Basically, any time Spain lost the ball, I mean, they're just immediately on you, gain it back. I, I think it just suffocated England. They were not able to to connect with him and R- Russo up top. I was really surprised with how anonymous Russo was, and then she got subbed out. And then Chloe Kelly really didn't do much either. 
Oh. Well, and they neutralized Rachel Daly as well. I mean, somebody yeah. that I argued should be in the running for the Golden Ball Award um, earlier this week did absolutely nothing. And I think got subbed off at half, maybe, if I'm not mistaken. I feel like she was a pretty much non-factor. Um, if, if it even wasn't at half, I think half. it was later in the game. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting from, from head coach Serena Weigman, uh, a former North Carolina Tar Heel great herself in the 80s. Coach Netherlands to the final in 2019, won Euros with both the Netherlands and England. She was a name that a lot of women's national team, U.S. women's national team fans have like thrown around as a potential, you know, replacement for Andonovsky. And I don't think she will. I think England is going to continue to put her in a succession, position to succeed, um, but was not able to properly adjust at all. I mean, you know, Spain comes out is definitely the better team in the first half, especially for the last you know half hour of the first half. It didn't feel like to me that England did much different even after that. Like they got punched in the mouth and then just didn't respond. But I mean, to your point, it's always nice to see beautiful soccer win out. And that's what Spain gives us. I mean, they play such an attractive style. They possess the ball so well. They move off the ball so well. I mean, they're they're we've said it a million times, but they're so individually talented, they're so technically gifted. Um it's in that 4-0 loss to Japan. It was such a weird result that result will live in my mind because they had 78% of the possession in that match and they conceded four goals. But it felt like they were able to learn from that. And as the tournament went on, got better about you know creating chances and being a little bit more direct while still having that possession. And so the team you saw in that game where they're just spinning their wheels and they can't create anything like that was not the case today. I mean, Spain definitely created the better chances was getting in better positions and you're still holding all that position. You're still technically gifted, but you're clinical now with it. And that's the difference. Yes. And I think, um, if, if they as a federation get their shit together and stop kissing their players on the mouth in during trophy celebrations, so um, weird. No, I mean, is. beyond weird, like gross. Yes. The, like we're like really sexually assaulting the... players on TV. Um, that was for a... people who don't know what we're talking about. That was the, the <laughs> president of the football association. One there again, their males like basically made out with Jenny Hermoso against her will on the stage. Like really, really fucking gross. Um, but if they can get that figured out as a federation and cleaned up, and moving some things in the right direction. I mean, you've got it in the notes. I mean, and I agree. Like this is a this is this is a dynasty. It seems waiting to come to the forefront. And dynasties in like international soccer are so difficult because the chances to compete are so finite and so spread out that like they're only going to get two to three international competitions a cycle to do anything. That like dynasty can be kind of a relative term but they're they're easily i think gonna be a top four top five team in the world for the foreseeable future yeah i mean i think the the precedent when you talk about dynasty and i absolutely agree i mean they, they've won world cups at the youth level as well paraguelo is a teenager i feel like we should yeah. cannot iterate that enough I think the president is, you know, Germany won back-to-back -back World Cups in 03 and 07. The U.S. won back-to-back -back World Cups in 11 and 15. 
I think that is the potential that this team has. Um, again, especially if if they stop handicapping themselves with toxic nepotism and an indignant federation. Did you see the tweet that the federation put out with like Vilda, like kissing the trophy, and there the caption was Vilda in like actively. Oh no, no, no! Against people I that didn't want him see out. that. Oh no! I, I forgot to send it to you earlier today. Which, like, why are you adding in a moment that should be a moment of triumph and celebration about the accomplishment of the players on the field? You have chosen to be combative with people who are like rightfully calling you out on your shit. I mean, it's well, and there were it goes pictures. beyond tone deaf. Well, there were pictures of the initial celebration of like the coaches over here on one side of the field and the players on the complete other side of the yeah. field. And like, that's, that should tell you all you need to know. And I hope that this victory is treated as a message of the talent that you have and not that you should continue these practices, but I have a bad feeling those practices are going to continue. Yeah, I can't say I'm optimistic. Um, best eleven, uh, best goals. Let's talk about some fun stuff. I yeah, I mean, I just I love tournaments like this because I love just making lists of stuff, and I love yeah, having debates about things like this. So I I compiled. I don't know if you had put any thought into this or have your own opinions, but I put together what I think is my World Cup best eleven. Run through that for you. So the in reality, the Golden Gloves winner was Mary Earps uh, for England. In real life, I thought it should have been Sakira Musovic, the Swedish goalie. Honestly, for that USA match in the round of 16 alone, where she made yeah. 11 saves and multiple of them were incredible. But she kept that level up the rest of the tournament. She was outstanding to me. I mean, and not that Mary Earps wasn't good, but I thought Musovic had the biggest impact on her team. She's my first team goalkeeper. Our uh, make believe Mac uh, make believe backline. Uh, my one American on this team, Naomi Naomi Germo, was incredible for the U.S. Easily our best player, shut everything down. That was like the one bright spot for the Americans was the backline and just defensively. So she gets a nod for me. Amanda Illestad, also from Sweden, scored four goals as a center back, while Sweden was also really good defensively. Uh, Rachel Daly for England, the wing back. I thought she was crucial um, for them, both in England being a very stout defensive team this tournament, but then also getting forward into the attack. Super dynamic. Summer of the wing back. Uh, and Olga Carmona, the left back. This is my golden ball recipient as well. A, a left back scored the game-winning goal in the semifinals and then the game-winning goal in the final. That's incredible. I, in my mind, it doesn't matter what position you play. Like, that's going ball worthy. The fact that she was a defender on top of that, immediately on the best 11. They they gave the actual going ball in real life to Atiana Bonmati, who is also who's my next player on this team, who is incredible. I mean, that was a super legit pick. Pulled the strings for them in the midfield. The most of a team that is so technically talented up and down the roster, she's probably even the most technically talented. Such a joy to watch. Just dominant all World Cup absolutely incredible um so i really don't have any i don't have any knock there against her gain in real life but for me the world cup is about moments and carmona had the two moments that really defined it for spain the rest of my midfield uh linda caicedo for colombia absolutely electric teenager scored some great goals got colombia further than they've ever been 
and Haley Rosso for Australia. We'll love to give it the same curve, but she just coming back from injury, just like didn't play enough. And I thought Rosso was actually really more of the, you know, the catalyst for them, you know, scoring goals and winning and advancing as far as they did another historic uh, performance for the Matildas. And forward lines up top, Sama Paraguelo. I mean, absolutely incredible. She won the FIFA Young Player um, of the Tournament Award. Um, again, a teenager. Insane. She's going to be a stud. We talk about a dynasty. She probably has, you know, three or four more World Cups in her. That's going to be so much fun to watch. Whereas the forward line for me, uh, Hanata Miyazawa was the golden boot winner. She scored the most goals. She had five for the Japanese. Um, and Kata Diatu Diani from France, super dynamic talent. They probably had a little bit of a disappointing World Cup, but she was incredible. The stuff that she was doing up top for them for uh, Le Bleu. So, do you have any edits? N- no, literally no edits. But one thing I found fascinating when you sent this to me in the wee hours of the morning, i.e., like 9 30 or 10 o'clock, one thing I noticed and thought about, like the lack of true number nines that performed super well at this world cup seemed very minimal because you've got Miyazawa for Japan and then like Spain, the Netherlands, um, even England to an extent didn't really have like a true out and out like striker. Like a lot of them played most, it felt like anyway, they played most, most of their, I guess, balls in the attacking third through their wing backs or through their midfield when they were going direct. And there weren't many out and out number nines. I felt like that like performed out of this world in really any way. Um, I don't know if you yeah, agree I think, with that, but that's I what I felt like I noticed. I mean, you could probably classify Diani as a number nine. And the, the ones like the true strikers I'm thinking of are like the ones that didn't even really make it out very far, like Haug for Norway. They lost in the round of 16. Um, Like Bunny Shaw, Jamaica. I mean, I don't think she even score a goal. Yeah, it is interesting. I will also say that, like, this was really hard to put together, and mm-hmm. you could easily argue for other players. Like, you could probably argue for Hemp or Russo for England, and if they had one, I probably would have switched them in there. Jill Roard for the Netherlands was another name that I was like, where do I squeeze her in? It's like, I should probably get a Dutch player in there, but I'm also just like kind of pissed at them because they're like our rival now and it's my list and I'll do what I want to. <laughs> um, and there's just like a ton of other players that are just a joy to watch that maybe didn't have like team success. Like, I feel like if you're making a team like this, it has to be players that are on teams that are advancing far. Yes. The USA is probably the one example that didn't, uh, but they at least made the round of 16. Um, yes, I haven't seen many other people like put listing. I would be interested to see what other people think. I mean, I'm sure in the coming days you'll see one from like Kim McCauley in the Athletic. You'll probably make Linehan. I'll probably put one together. Sports Illustrated will probably put one together at some point. Um, I don't know. I just found it fascinating that I felt like a lot of your best players in this competition were on the wings or played yeah. kind of in that hybrid wing back role or through the midfield. Um, Cause so much of women's soccer has been um, your better players have been on the back line, capitalizing on set pieces like Ilstead for uh, Sweden, or you've got just the best forward, 
in in the world, right? Which is Abby Wambach and Alex Morgan for so long for the U.S. Um, so I just that that's what I and like fascinating for sure. And the the other name I thought of Alexandra Pop for Germany scored four goals in this tournament, and then Germany didn't make it out of the group stage. Right. So that's another yeah. And I think Morgan and Wambach are like the the two other really good examples. Was the was it Prinz was like the German striker before Pop? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a new age that we're in. Yes. Um, I also love. We talked about the Gold Cup. I love debating kits. I love debating jerseys. So I I've established a top five here. This is definitely something that I imagine most people will not agree with. Um, because this is always like a super debated topic. I will say there is a lot of teams that have just like kind of classic i already have had i already have thoughts so you should go ahead and talk about this all right so then i i can i can come in with with one team in particular that i'm a little frustrated didn't even make an honorable mention for this list but go ahead fair i was gonna say like there's a lot of teams that have like really like classic iconic looks you know like brazil always has like the yellow jersey blue shorts like england is in the all white there's a lot of those that like were really good and solid. I always really enjoy the ones that are a little bit outside the box and still look good. And this is reflected in this list. Um, so Japan is my number five. They're one of the ones that has kind of the more traditional look. I thought their blue jerseys were while being the, you know, the iconic Japan look had really cool detail, it, like felt Japanese. I don't know if that makes sense. So they are my number five. We talked about Jamaica. They were my number one gold cup uniform and the women had basically the exact same ones the yellow with the the green and black stripes and those are just so fresh and i can't i can't contradict myself so i put them at number four number three is going to be my hottest take and this is not an endorsement of this country's government but i thought china's yellow jerseys with the red trim were fresh it's, it's just like the nike basic template but you don't see yellow and red together a lot and I don't know. I just thought popularly well, like a lot of yellow jerseys, you get like dark blue or black with them, like, you know, Sweden, Australia, Jamaica. The yellow red combo is rare, probably because it's mostly communist countries that have those colors. Um, and they typically don't succeed at a super high level on the world stage. Um, I don't know. China's were just really doing it for me. Number two for me was Canada's like red, like digital maple leaf. I thought that was. Like that pattern was super, super sick. Disappointed that they did not get out of the group stage, so we couldn't see that more. That was their federation may also be going bankrupt, but they got the jerseys right. And number one for me was Columbia's space jerseys. Those were so fucking cool. I actually looked it up. It's actually a reference to Caño Cristales, which is like a river in Colombia that has all these like super crazy call it's like the the river of five colors and that's what it was inspired by but it looked like just kind of like galaxy prints those are super cool absolutely love those that was the jersey of the tournament for me what what were your thoughts i don't why why is nigeria not on this list they're like nigerian highlighter green and white it's because i think for I think they were a victim of their own success because in past years, Nigeria has always brought the heat. They consistently have amazing jerseys. I thought that, I mean, they were fine. They're just, nah, they're bro, just when, no, 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 no. When Nigeria and Canada played each other, that was like 
that was like uniform heaven right there. That was a very good un- matchup of uniforms. Absolutely. Yeah. They, I will they've say, had better though. I will say my lovely wife, Rachel, hated the U.S.'s splatter paint home uniforms. <laughs> I have to agree. I mean, they're, that's my only fine. that's my only addition because uh, I, I get your I would probably remove Japan just because like, yes, there were more details, but it was still very much like I've seen it before. Like, I think they wore pink this time around, and I feel like those would be above their blue uniforms. And I figured you would go with their away kits more. A than lot their... of people love those. I, they didn't do it for me. Okay. They, well, they, I'm just going to like a you... weird lava lamp thing. Sounds good. I'm going to let you have it because you're wrong. Um, anyway, uh, best goals. Um, This is probably doesn't make sense for an audio medium, but we're going to talk about it anyways. I did put together a list of my favorite goals. From this tournament, there were some absolute banners. I I made a, I, I picked five and had an honorable mention. I probably could have picked twenty. I mean, mm-hmm. what an amazing World Cup for just scoring great goals. Like Esme Brutes for the Netherlands had a bunch. Lauren James was scoring banners for England. My honorable mention. This was like the peak of the U.S.'s experience at the World Cup. But the opener against Vietnam was a phenomenal team goal. Like Lindsey Horan, like plays a line breaking pass through like. 40 yards of Vietnam defenders. Alex Morgan with the cheeky little touch, like behind her back, sets up Sophia Smith for the nutmeg finish. Like that was, you got like excited. It's like, oh man, like US hitting on all cylinders is going to be great. We got all of our stars like, you know, working together. And it went downhill from there. But that goal was beautiful. And I will remember that. Uh, Number five for me was Sam Kerr's lone wolf goal against England. Maybe not the most technical goal, but when you combine that with like what the moment was, that was absolutely incredible. Just the individual, just like as cliche as this is, like putting the team on your back situation. The strike was phenomenal. Just the context of her coming back from injury. They're down one nothing. You score that goal to tie in a World Cup that you're hosting in the furthest you've ever been. Just absolute scenes. Number four for me was Linda Caicedo against Germany. This is the one where she took a touch in the box, then absolutely just diced up two German defenders and split them, and then unleashed a shot that went upper 90. She, along with, like, there's a, just a bunch of young talent that I'm so excited to watch moving forward, and she's so high on that list with, like, Paraguelo. Number three was Brazil's goal against, uh, well, they scored a bunch against Panama. Well, they had just like this beautiful, like Hogo Bonito, like Tiki Taco, where they like punched around like five different people. There's a cross. Ari Borg just like brought it down and then like back healed it to Biazana Reto, who finished it. That was, it was just like, it looked like playing FIFA Street, but they're just doing this at a World Cup that just like only Brazil can do. Number two for me was Katie McCabe's Olympico against Canada. I mean, that's just audacious to hit a goal from a corner kick super early. And it was like the fourth minute and she knew it too. And it was hit perfectly. I went on this rant earlier in a different episode. I just love Katie McCabe. That one was incredible and would have been the goal of the tournament. If it was not for Panama's Marta Cox, that free kick from what was it, like 35 yards out. Absolutely insane. So Panama's on here twice. They got scored on by Brazil for the number four, but like that, that one to me, like that's 
I'm struggling. You can tell I'm struggling to put into words how just absurd that free kick was. I just to get it, her. just to get it on frame, yeah. and to have the power on it that it dips under the bar after traveling that far, because like yeah, like a a lot of professional soccer players can get a free kick from that distance on frame, and do you know what happens? The goalie right catches it. Hands. They catch it as if they're playing center field for the Houston Astros. That's what happens. And that thing went in and damn near ripped the net in half. And it was talk about you talk about moments. Panama's first ever World Cup goal to take the lead on France. I'm I mean, come on. So I'm very I'm very happy that that was your number one because that was the goal of the tournament for me as well. I guess it was only appropriate. I did I literally didn't even think of this until just now that a podcast that is ostensibly about Concacaf should have a Concacaf goal as a number one. Almost last Canaleras, man, they're the best. Uh, Marta Cox, I saw like the other day. Obviously, she's like back playing for a club team now in Mexico, Monterrey. Appropriate as we talk about them in uh. Leagues Cup did like the exact same thing, like scored yes. in a, another absurd free kick. This is just all she does is just score free kicks from 30 yards and beyond. Did you have any other uh, any goals to say to you that we did not talk about? I mean, I think the for this purpose, I would say no. I mean, you can easily talk about like goals in specific moments. Um, like namely the opener for New Zealand against Norway. Like, I think that's a goal that you could put on a list like this, not because the goal was like anything special, but because of what it encapsulated. Uh, Although that goal was very well worked. Like the cross was really good. Wilkinson's finish was good. I did have that thought. The other one in that vein would be Philippines goal, ironically against New Zealand. Like Mm -hmm. that was a a crisp header from Bolton. Yes. Um, so, so I think, I think there's, like like Morocco scoring uh, against Colombia, like you could probably put put something like that in there because it allowed them to advance over Germany. Um, I don't know. I mean, like like I think again, it's it's more about moments and like uh, it's cool when some of the a few of the goals on this list I think also encapsulated like an important moment in the tournament. Um, and the fact that, I mean, p- the Panamanian, the entire Panamanian team was like sobbing after Marta Cox scored. Like if, if that doesn't show you what that moment meant to that team, that federation, that country, those people like, um, yeah. So, so I agree wholeheartedly with your list. I think it's perfect. Like you could even probably put like, Lindsay Horan's goal against the Netherlands that she got like she almost got like her yeah. her knee taken out. She motherfucked Van de Donk and then scored immediately. Like that was a great moment. Um, but no, I think I think your list encapsulated everything. I thought about I thought about like Carmona's winner against Sweden because that was a banner and it puts you into a World Cup final. But I like I went back and watched the highlights, and it's still a great goal. But like the technical level wasn't as high as like some of the other ones. But yeah, I mean, like I mean, now I'm thinking about other moments. Like South Africa scored a stoppage time winner to get to the round of 16. Like that one is probably up there. 
Um, there's another one I forget. Like Zambia scored some goals. They won a game. Like you could argue for that one too. Just uh, if I had more time, I would make a whole like YouTube compilation. That's why I love dude. Like that's a great like YouTube rabbit hole. Is oh, it like yes. give it's, me every goal from the 2006 yes. World Cup? It's, just watch it's, that for it's 45 terrible. minutes. It's terrible. But uh, all right, I'm gonna give you the floor for the next couple minutes, and we will uh, discuss this lovely conversation that you are going to have with yeah. the listeners of this podcast. This, ladies and gentlemen, to preface is a somewhat unfortunate conversation um, that that we're going to have, but. Um, for people like Andy and I that love this sport and want it to continue to grow and want the coverage to continue to improve. We feel this is an important conversation to have. Andy has written a couple words about this and we will discuss following the conclusion of his monologue. Andy, the floor is yours. Thank you, judge. Um, so we're talking about the broadcasting. Uh, like Dom said, it is, it is unfortunate that I feel up obligated to go on this rant i would love nothing more than to focus on the athletes and the teams and the games and the moments of this world cup but while my preference is is to not get political with sports i also recognize that sports are inherently political and always have been you know from jesse owens winning gold medals for the united states at the 36 olympics in nazi germany to jackie robinson breaking the color barrier to muhammad ali boycotting the vietnam war to Cold War overtones of the miracle on ice, even none of the fact that we have military flyovers this morning events, albeit they are badass. All these things and, and so many other examples are political to at least some degree, simply because just that is the nature of human existence. And that may not be an enjoyable reality for everybody, but it is the reality nonetheless. I say all of this because there are two notions about the U.S. women's national team that should be debunked. The first one, which is just absurd on the face of it, is that this team lost because they were too, quote, woke. For starters, anytime somebody uses the word woke earnestly, I automatically assume that they are not a serious person who wants to engage in an intelligent conversation. Normally, my strategy for this kind of discourse is to just ignore it completely because it's an obvious bad faith argument from people who do not ever watch or care about women's soccer. But when former President Donald Trump who, if he isn't in jail by then, will also be a candidate for the 2024 presidential election, is posting about it, and his acolytes are parodying it. It kind of forces your hand. The thing is, though, the, the 2023 version of this team, at, at least to my perception, hasn't really been engaged in that much activism, not nearly as much as in 2015 and 2019 when they did win the World Cup. And the team they lost to, Sweden, is one of the most left-leaning countries you can find on the globe and has a roster filled with lesbians who speak out on equality. But anybody who reads above the fifth grade level can easily discern that that, that that argument is nonsense. The more dangerous one in my mind is the notion that this team is polarizing for their stances and causes in politics. Stances like Megan Rapinoe and eventually many of, your, many of her teammates kneeling for the national anthem in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick as he peacefully protested the killing of black people at the hands of police. Mind you, this was before the killing of George Floyd sparked similar pro protests throughout the world years later. Causes like the team's fight for equitable pay, which resulted in a new deal with U.S. soccer in 2022, and politics like simply existing as an openly gay woman. I would argue vehemently that these issues are not simply political, 
but are issues of human rights and issues where members of the United States Women's National Team are coming down on the right side of history. The argument that these actions are divisive is not only a collection of bad faith logic, but is hypocritical. Because the activism in which these women participate, the actions that strive to make America a better and more equitable place for all of its citizens, is in my mind one of the most patriotic and unifying things one can do. I truly believe that there are very few fans that genuinely care about the game in this country, specifically the women's game in this country, that are alienated by these actions. The people who are offended by them are a vocal minority who are never going to invest in the women's game in the first place. Their manufactured outrage over things like players not singing the national anthem, as if the vast majority of athletes don't normally just stand in respectful silence during the anthem anyways, is usually a grift or some sort of scheme to either push against these ideas of freedom or to gain clout among those who don't want to see those freedoms shared. Again, most of the time, the easiest and most prudent strategy for dealing with these bad faith arguments is to simply ignore them and not give them legitimacy. Unfortunately, that's nearly impossible to do when Fox is the rights holder for these competitions while their news branch is actively pushing this narrative of divisiveness. It makes for this incredibly strange dynamic kind of like Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, playing both sides so we can always come out on top, where one, of, one arm of the Fox operation is presenting the World Cup from a rah-rah nationalist point of view, while the other arm is openly celebrating when the team loses. I always find it incredibly strange when people who claim to love America and patriotism actively root against women who are proudly representing their country. And even if we lived in a utopia where we could just ignore the, the politics of the situation, Fox just does a shitty job of presenting these tournaments. It never feels like the event has the weight that it should, like it does when other networks like ESPN or CBS own these rights, almost like it's an afterthought for Fox. The production quality is mediocre at best. Graphics will be wrong. Social media posts feel like they're coming from somebody who doesn't even watch soccer. And the analysis is often surface level and just filled with platitudes. This year saw the addition of Carly Lloyd to the studio, who seemed like she had a really specific ax to grind about her tenure with the national team ended despite being one of the most successful and beloved players in the program's history. Her insinuations that this team simply wasn't trying hard enough when there were clear tactical explanations for the team's shortcomings really fell flat for me. It was almost jarring when Ari Hintz, the former Germany player, would provide an actual tactical breakdown of the game amidst all the noise. Not to mention the fact that they straight up lie about kickoff times to get people to tune into pregame coverage. If a game kicks off at 3 a.m. and you say it kicks off at 1 a.m., you should be tried for war crimes. Of course, all of this is leading to Alexi Lawless. After the USA's elimination, Lawless, the former U.S. men's national team defender, who is now a studio analyst for Fox and an endorser of Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign for some reason, tweeted out, quote, don't kill the messenger. This hashtag USWNT is polarizing. Politics, causes, stances, and behavior have made this team unlikable to a portion of America. This team has built its brand and has derived its power from being the best slash winning. If that goes away, they risk becoming irrelevant, end quote. The don't kill the messenger bit is hilarious because it couldn't be more obvious that this is the exact opinion that he holds and that he is the one actively pushing that polarization. The idea that the most successful team in the history of women's international soccer at a moment when women's sports are more popular than ever would ever become irrelevant is laughable. In my opinion, the, the saga of Alexi Lawless is a tragic one. A lot of jokes have been made about his career World Cup stats, like compared to Megan Rapinoe's, but he was a key member of the 1994 team that was truly monumental for the game in the United States, 
making the round of 16 as the country hosted the World Cup for the first time. With giant bushy red hair and a long beard and a side hustle as a rock musician, he was an eccentric star of the brand new Major League Soccer that would debut two years later after he became the first American to ever play in Serie A. He was a Mac Herman Trophy winner at Rutgers in the late 80s and won an MLS Cup, Supporters' Shield, and U.S. Open Cup with LA Galaxy in the early 2000s. He had every opportunity to become American soccer's cool uncle and a cult hero as the game exploded in this country. Instead, he has decided to become a grifter. He has choose his journalistic duties to play this weird devil's advocate role because he knows it plays to the Fox News viewer base, and it will get hate clicks from people who disagree with him. No publicity is bad publicity, I guess. At one point, I watched a segment where he displayed just like an open disdain for Rapino, which is an insanely unprofessional thing for a broadcaster presenting a World Cup to do. He is capable of providing thoughtful insight when he wants to. I've seen it happen over the course of his career that started at ESPN, but it rarely comes out now as he tries to morph himself into this weird right-wing soccer Skip Bayless hot take merchant. He'll go on these weird, like, patriotic locker room speech-type rants instead of doing his actual job, which is just provide analysis, man. He even looks the part now, showing up to the studio clean-shaven with his hair slicked back and wearing an ill-fitting suit as if he were running for state senate. The level to which he will sell out is actually pretty remarkable. During the 2022 World Cup, the one controversially held in Qatar under a mountain of bribery and human rights abuses, Wallace was happy to forego a critical perspective to instead appear on set with a Qatari influencer in full garb and a blatant and shameless act of sports washing. To me, it feels like all this is just a continued audition for a spot at Fox News, I guess, as their sports or soccer guy. He even plays up the troll persona. A quick scroll through his Twitter replies shows the words and actions of a petulant child who must be at the center of attention at any cost. Let me know who that reminds you of. But the comedic and ironic part of this grift, of any grift that tries to ride the coattails of the worst people on our political spectrum, is that they do not care about him. They'll utilize him while he's useful to bash the U.S. women's national team for daring to speak out to make the world a better place. And they'll cast him aside when they're done with him. He's sold his soul to become one of the least like figures among actual American soccer fans, while still being irrelevant to all those people who have allegedly abandoned their women's national team fandom now that the team has negotiated a new payment structure. I truly cannot wait for the day a real broadcaster regains the rights to, in my opinion, the greatest sporting event in the world. And we get this fucking clown off of our televisions. I probably should just start doing Duolingo to brush up on my Spanish and watch on Telemundo instead. But the worst part for all of us is that Fox still has the English language rights to the 2026 Men's World Cup too. So at one of the most critical times for the sport in this country, these idiots and grifters will continue to do a disservice to so many Americans who care so deeply about this game and its culture and any new fan that decides to turn in. And to me, that's just heartbreaking. chug some water now i don't know if you have any thoughts i don't know man i like (laughs) you and i both have master's degrees from pretty well renowned sport management programs across the country and so you and i have taken classes where we discuss (laughs) the ethics of things like sports washing um women's accessibility to sports um, the accessibility of sports to those with disabilities, right? Like we, we've been able to break down 
a lot of human rights issues that go hand in hand with sports and political issues that go hand in hand with sports, I think, in ways that a lot of the general public probably hasn't had the opportunity to do. And um, a, a part of what I think I actually liked about this World Cup being in the uh, Eastern Hemisphere is I didn't have to watch any of Fox's coverage. I watched none of it. I literally watched none of it. I wouldn't watch pregame coverage. I wouldn't watch halftime coverage. And I sure as heck barely watched any post-match coverage. I would turn the matches on right before they started, or they would already be going when I would turn them on. Um, and when I watched replays, guess what I scrubbed through? <laughs> halftime show, pre-match show, and post-match show. Um, it's a shame that we've gotten to a point where you and I feel like we have to say something or maybe not have to say something, but feel inclined to say something. Um, it's just bad news because I think what you're seeing with Alexi Lawless is a lot of what you're seeing with us soccer as a federation, as a whole nepotism got him there. A, a hand job here and there probably got him there. Um, I don't think it was nepotism. I mean, he was legitimately qualified at the end of his career to be a broadcaster. Like that's what pisses me off more. I think is that like he he has the experience. He's achieved at the high levels of this game. He was even he like worked in the front office for LA Galaxy after he stopped playing. He's had the perspective to be good at this, and he has been good at this in the past. But instead, he's now just decided to like. He's he's seen the Fox bag and seen what it takes to get it and has decided, all right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell out and do it like that's what pisses me off more. I don't think it's nepotism, which is not not a problem, but that's a problem in other areas, you know? Yeah, you're right. And I get I'll correct myself there. But um, I don't know, man, it just it just feels like the underlying issues with U.S. soccer are personified. Um in him like there was a video on twitter during the gold cup where he did like a men's national team like striker hierarchy oh and he God. put jesus for like number, number two. two and there was another podcast that basically said like he is doing the u.s soccer fan an injustice because somebody who has no clue or who's just getting into the sport trying to learn about the u.s men's national team is being told that this guy who can't score in big matches <laughs> is our second best striker when that's not even remotely close to when the he's case. probably our, like fifth best striker. Yeah. Right. And so when you're feeding this false information, much like Fox news does on a daily basis, it, it can create a level of mistrust among those people like you and I, and it can push other fans away and even push some small minority to root against the U S women's national team who aren't rooting against them because they're woke. They're rooting against them because they hate women. And that's cool. But like, just say that. Um, and, and one, one thing I found really disappointing was what seemed to be Carly Lloyd's agenda. And then the half-assed apologies afterwards, for her to say that the team isn't trying hard enough is such a fucking cop out for what 
actually happened and anybody with half a fucking brain could tell that we were being outclassed from the touchline that that's that's where we got wrecked the entire tournament vietnam's coach probably could have done much more with our talent than vlatko did and that's no i don't even want to disrespect him or put an indictment on him because we've already been there but for her to just lazily say that it's because there's no effort is something that I, now that I'm not in sports, I'm going to say about my favorite basketball team because I'm not in it anymore. And I don't care that much, but for somebody who gets paid millions of dollars to sit up there and to inform the American public of what's actually going on and for her to just go, yeah, you could tell they just don't care. What? What you're you're saying that because you got phased out in 2019 because you were old and couldn't score bangers anymore? It was still a super sub on a World Cup winning team. And, and, it was a and, crucial like part of it. And you're mad because every single player on this year's team that crashed out of the World Cup is better than you ever were already. Sophia Smith right now is a better player than Carly Lloyd ever was. I mean, I don't think. I think maybe not accolades wise. Maybe not accolades wise, but she won the NWSL MVP award at what? Yeah, she. Yeah, Sophia's twelve Smith, years I'm, old. But like the whole, like I don't think Alyssa Thompson right now is better than Carly Lloyd. I don't think sure. Savannah Demello is. Sure, I'm just, I'm just, I'm loudly trying to make a point, much like her. See how, see how uneducated I sound when I just make outlandish statements without any fucking proof. So Carly Lloyd sounds like, and she, like, I don't think she ever, I don't think she explicitly ever said that like the team didn't care enough, but like, it was like heavily implied. And like, what really rubbed me the wrong way was, I think it was after, um, it was after Portugal when the U S drew, which is not ideal, but still like made it to the round of 16. And you could tell that like afterwards, I think it was Kelly O'Hara was like in the huddle was basically because like Vladko didn't, feel like coaching and Kelly O'Hara is basically like telling everyone like, Hey, it has to be better, but we have to move on. Like we're moving on. Like we're going forward. You can like see her giving that speech afterwards. Like, okay. Like they still technically got the job done in advance and like, like, okay. Like, you know, you can take some joy in that. And like, they were smiling a little bit and like dancing around a little bit. They're also just like human beings. They're like signing autographs for fans who like traveled across the globe. And like, that's like what she like really had to hang up on. It's like, god forbid that they become ambassadors for the sport you know like it's god forbid they have a human reaction well and and mind you that this is this is a take i don't think many people want to address but she won the golden ball at the 2015 world cup because of three matches she was non-existent in the group stage pretty irrelevant against colombia she scored the winning goal against China, and yes, played phenomenal against Germany in the semis and obviously had one of the greatest World Cup moments, men's or women's ever, in the final against Japan, scoring three goals in like six minutes. I mean, to be fair, I just gave Olga Carmona my unofficial going ball for two but, games, No, 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 so. but what I'm saying is, is like three matches, Carly. Three matches. Like you are non-existent against Australia. You weren't there against Sweden. Abby Wambach scored the winner against Nigeria to close the group stage. 
like stop this righteous bullshit of like why i did it this way and because i had this mentality i did it this way like you didn't even give the team room to potentially improve in the knockout stages which is what a broadcaster is supposed to talk about <laughs> sorry i, I, I think I've i think i've completely blanked now i didn't i did not love carly lloyd's contributions but i think i've i've less problem with them because you never like straight like they were really surface level and like not super intelligent but they weren't like bashing really like crossing those lines yeah too far as like alexi was just like completely out of right field just like nonsense like twitter troll talking points i saw i think it was like tobin heath in like her podcast with with chris and press where after those comments she's like you know what makes the women's national team great is that you have like you know energy like that and it gets bounced out by like you know heather o'reilly who's like super bubbly and positive all the time and she and her the point that she was making is that like you know the like the aggregation of all those things between 23 people on a roster like all of that together is like what makes it like such a great thing. And I think Carly Lloyd in this situation is, doesn't cover herself in glory because she doesn't have like a good like foil because she's next to Alexi Laws, who's like going even further into absurdity. Like if you have Carly Lloyd, who's giving you the like hard nose, like mentality takes, but then you also have like a couple other people who are giving you like actual tactical analysis and like the other side of it too it probably bounces out a lot better. But when you when you don't have that at all, it, it makes it worse. And Fox sucks. And it's it's hilarious to I, I've seen like several pictures of people in like stadiums and like Fox is like, you know, like little watch parties or whatever. It's just people with signs that just say shut up, Alexi, and it's hilarious. Well, and even like uh... I don't I don't know any like actual soccer fans that like him. Well, I'm even going to take it another step farther in that at both World Cups, their desk was not on site at the final. And I know you said that that's like a like that's the least of our worries. But like when you you mentioned like the World Cup never felt like a big event on Fox. Right. Well, part of making something feel like a big deal is being on site for the biggest games, right? Like Apple TV last night, their whole desk crew was in Nashville. So the half. I'm also wondering if like FIFA <laughs> would even allow them to do that. They, they ESPN able to. ESPN has done that. ESPN did, did that they? for for every final that they had in the past. Did it at South Africa. They did it in Germany for the Women's World Cup. I mean, they didn't even like. Yeah, I mean, at that point, to me, I don't really care where the desk is because, like, it doesn't matter where the desk is. There's still going to be more. It doesn't matter if you put them at the midfield line. There are going to be morons there, too. No, no, but I guess my point is, is, like, if you can't even do the little things right, then what are we even doing here? Why do you have the rights if if there's not a full level of care put into it? And now, who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe Maybe FIFA doesn't fucking allow them to have a desk on site. But... Anyway, I'm losing my train of thought and I don't really want to be angry anymore. 
I mean, is like the the question. I mean, I don't understand why Fox buys the rights to this when they clearly like hate it. Like, if you're going to treat it with this level of, level of apathy, why even why buy the rights to this? I don't understand. Ugh. Anyways, nonetheless, the World Cup was, despite all of that, phenomenal World Cup. I had such a great time watching it. Amazing players, amazing moments. Like, we should not lose sight of that. Um, and it's only going to get better going forward. Like, the next World Cup is probably going to be filled well, with even the- more banners and hopefully more American wins. Well, and the women's gold cup is being produced by uh, Paramount Plus, so ideally, that, generally really good. So that, that coverage, I feel good about that. that coverage should be complete and thorough and entertaining, and every match will be televised live. So, things to look forward to. Yeah, shall we talk um, about the inaugural League's Cup final? Stateside, we did have some amazing soccer happening. We did have a third-place match in the League's Cup, but with Monterey having already clinched a CONCACAF Champions Cup berth through their position in the aggregate Liga MX table and having spent a month traveling across the U.S., they had really nothing to play for and rotated their entire starting lineup, throwing a bunch of youth players out there. So Philadelphia Union walked to a 3-0 win with goals from Jesus Bueno, Michael Ua, and Alejandro Bedoya. And the two-time CONCACAF Champions League semifinalists returned to the competition for the third time. But the final at Geodis Park in Nashville was a blockbuster. Unlike the World Cup final, this one did kind of start out pretty cagey. Felt like both teams were just like staring across no man's land at each other from their respective trenches, waiting for the other to make a move. In the 18th minute, American World Cup legend Walker Zimmerman had a header on goal from Canadian international Lucas McNaughton's long throw. That forced a save out of U.S. men's national team goalkeeping prospect Drake Callender. Finnish international Robert Taylor had a clean strike on goal from the top of the box for Miami in the 21st minute. That forced a diving save from former Charlotte 49ers great Elliot Panico. But after doing his classic walkabout for the opening quarter of the match, Messi made his mark in the 23rd minute. A ball deflected out to the top of the box where he jumped on it, effortlessly sidestepped Zimmerman, and in a flash unleashed a curling shot inside the left post. That Panico had no chance of saving, and the Nashville defenders had no chance of blocking. It was his 10th goal of the tournament, and it's it's still remarkable to just watch him do these things on a summer night in Tennessee. Nashville had a nice move in the 34th minute. 2017 Gold Cup champion Dax McCarty played a through ball wide to Daniel Lovitz, a 2019 Gold Cup runner-up, who played across to the back post for Alex Mule, a 2018 Supporter Shield winner with New York Red Bulls, and his header was deflected out for a corner by Kamal Miller. If did feature other World Cup for Canada. I will be trying to squeeze in every single Gold Cup reference I can in this podcast, just FYI. Yeah, yeah, I know. Keep going. Miami had a prime opportunity in the 50th minute as Jordi Alba, a Champions League winner with Barcelona and a Euros winner with Spain. He cut the ball back for Joseph Martinez, the 2018 MLS MVP with Atlanta United, but his shot was blocked by Zimmerman. In the 57th minute, Nashville's Hani Mukhtar, the reigning MLS MVP, Delivered a corner kick that snuck to the back post where Fafa Bako, who was a scoring threat for Haiti at the Gold Cup this summer, got low to the ground to direct a header on goal that bounced off a collection of Miami limbs and found the back of the net to tie the match at 1-1. As the momentum shifted towards the boys in gold, American World Cup legend Shaq Moore stepped to intercept a pass in the 67th minute and ripped a shot on goal. In the 71st, Messi almost did his thing again as Sergio Busquets, a World Cup champion with Spain, found him slipped behind McCarty 
And out of nothing, Messi lashed a shot that hit the post. In the 77th, Mukhtar posted up Miller and put him in the spin cycle, breaking away on goal. He laid it off to Sam Surridge, a striker who's featured at clubs like Bournemouth, Stoke City, and Nottingham Forest. But Calendar was there for the save. He came up big again in stoppage time as Mukhtar's tight angle shot forced a fingertip save over the goal. And Surridge's header from the ensuing corner kick was saved at point-blank range. In a crazy moment to end regulation, Ecuadorian international Leonardo Campana shouldered off more on a long ball to get in on goal all alone. He chipped Panico as he came out, but not at a trajectory that would go in. As he tried to get it, more recovered and fell down again right in front of him. Campana hurled more and dove and twisted his body on the ground to direct the ball on goal. With the last touch of regulation, the ball hit off the post. In the glory of the League's Cup, that meant we went directly to penalty kicks. Messi, Mukhtar, and Busquets all made their kicks, but Calendar made a kick save on Randall Leal to give Miami a 2-1 to advantage after two rounds. Two rounds of mix from Campana, Godoy, Miller, and Zimmerman followed up to give Victor Uloa the opportunity to win it for Miami. But Panago dove full out to the left to deny him and keep Miami alive. Uh, sorry, keep Nashville alive. Surge converted his to make it 4-4 and send it to sudden death. We then had five straight rounds of makes, including some beautifully taken penalties that found top bins, giving us a sudden death goalkeeper 11th round. Calendar stepped up and absolutely crushed his penalty into the roof of the net, walked back to the line, and then dove to stop Panico's shot to give Miami an insane 10-9 win in the shootout and their first ever trophy. Inter-Miami is the inaugural League's Cup champion in their fourth year of existence. They qualified directly for the round of 16 of the 2024 CONCACAF Champions Cup, their first appearance in that competition. They're joined in that round by Pachuca, the 2022 Liga MX Apertura champions. Three more round of 16 bids are reserved for the 2023 champions of MLS Cup, the CONCACAF Caribbean Cup, and the CONCACAF Central American Cup. Nashville qualifies for the first round of the Champions Cup, which is also their first appearance in that competition and their fourth season as an MLS club. Other qualifiers include Vancouver Whitecaps, who are the 2023 Canadian Championship winners, and five teams from this past year in Liga MX. Those are Tigres, Toluca, Guadalajara, Monterey, and Club America. Berths are still up for grabs from MLS, the U.S. Open Cup, the Canadian Premier League, the Caribbean Cup, and the Central American Cup. Thoughts on the League's Cup, baby? Okay. I, I got to get something off my chest. Um, cause clearly the announcers did not read the game notes properly. Um, as the former Charlotte men's soccer sports information director, it is Elliot Panico, Panico, oh, not Panico. And everybody on there, when, when ESPN had the rights to MLS matches, his name was said correctly every single time. It is Elliot Panico, Panico, Panico. Okay, so that's that's done. I hope I, I hope, apologize, Elliot. I hope current Charlotte 49ers head coach Kevin Langan is listening and gives me some level of a pat on the back um following that. Um aside from that, uh phenomenal match. Again, I said it at the open. Um crazy first match to actually watch from start to finish um in this competition i thought the apple tv coverage was great i've watched a handful of mls matches and overall like i think the streaming quality is pretty good um their studio show as you've mentioned multiple times is really good um their desk at halftime with just three mls gangbusters 
was insane. Moe Du, Bradley Wright Phillips, and Sasha Kleschen, um, three dudes that I think for our generation of soccer fans are pretty synonymous with MLS if you followed the league for a while. So that was really, really cool watching those three actually break down the first half. Um, I was gonna say, and three dudes who are like actually gonna give you like good thoughts and insight. Right. Like they were they were really good. I love right. Moe Du. He's awesome. Sasha Kleschen, I thought was really good too. Um, it was great listening to Taylor Twelman again, I will say. Um, it's a shame that he is no longer announcing U.S. men's national team matches, but with the U.S. men's national team deal with Turner, I don't think we're going to see the U.S. men's national team on ESPN for quite a long time. Um, I think he left ESPN. He did, and he's on Apple. So even if he had – what I'm saying is even if he had stayed at ESPN, we probably wouldn't have heard him for ever. He um, can be – I don't dislike Taylor Tolman, but I can only do him in like small doses. He's like – he's too much sometimes. Some of it can be an act, but I I do think he, him and Stu Holden, I think are the two best color guys from the American conglomerate that I think we have, at least for the men's game for the most part. Um, Anyway, from nostalgic purposes, it was cool listening to him again. Messi's goal was an absolute banger. I don't ever want to hear anybody say that the defending in MLS is so bad that Messi's just going to score every game. Like, Yes. Okay. Is MLS defending up to the quality of league uh, or La Liga? Probably not. Watch the highlights of some of these goals, man. He, he has torn center backs to shreds for two decades. I E the video of him sending Jerome Boateng to the shadow realm in the 2015 champions league. The, the, when Jerome Boateng was fresh off a world cup title and at the height of his powers as a center back and, and Lionel Messi, not only put him in a blender, he literally, he literally sent him to the shadow realm to deal with Exodia and Seto Kaiba. That is, that is what happened. And he's still yeah, doing that. You get that. references. He, we're, he, we're starting to get off the rails. He, he, <laughs> he is at the peak of his powers, and he's still doing it. And it's amazing. And I mean, he did those, it to um, who's the Croatian center back that someone just paid like 80 million euro for? And he did it to him at the World Cup. Chelsea. Like, it's like Chelsea. Yeah. Did yeah. And, and I, I think for those people that want to bring that up before. Messi being amazing you don't like soccer and you don't care about mls and if that's going to be your attitude i don't really need you watching the sport to begin with um i thought the uh, final... Gavardi all got signed by man city sorry okay Quick fact check but sure. our point, your point stands your point right. stands. um and i thought the atmosphere was incredible i thought it was an amazing showcase for the the sport in this country um I thought Nashville was the, were the deserved winners, but like we mentioned uh, on Thursday, like when you when you go straight to PKs, you leave room for chaos like this. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, it was an amazing shootout. You know, it's it's nuts because uh, France and Australia had the longest ever at a World Cup, and this one was one round longer. It was eleven rounds over ten. Um, yeah, I, I I thought it was an incredible showcase for the game in this country. I'm excited for the next edition of the League's Cup. Again, I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, we got to find some way to get the competitive balance a little bit better, whether it's 
putting these matches in predetermined cities and predetermined sites or allowing Mexican teams to host some of these matches. I don't know what the solution is long-term, especially when you're only going to do a single round Robin and a single elimination knockout stage, it can make things a little bit tricky, but, um, Outside of that, I'm super excited for the next edition of this. And also shout out to Philadelphia Union for taking the third place match seriously and qualifying for Champions Cup. I'm glad you brought up the point about people like complaining about MLS defending. And like it is such a <laughs> destructive, negative mindset that people have sometimes. They just find any excuse to like just try and shit on MLS. This match was so much fun. It's just like you're allowed to have fun and just enjoy things. And that's the way I approach this. Watching Lionel Messi play on American soil for an American team is so much fun. That was incredible. He played in the state of Tennessee. He played last night in the state of Tennessee. He on Wednesday is going to play in Cincinnati, Ohio. He has played on the same playing surface that JMU football won a national championship on. This is true. Um, I do love me some Toyota stadium. Shout out to Frisco, Texas. Um, the, and the goal he scored. Well, also do we think Messi's going to have skyline chili in Cincinnati? God, I hope not. He's already getting like the lucky charms of Publix. Anyways, that shit's terrible. Ooh, hot uh, chili takes. I've never actually had it. It's not. I'm it's not in it's, no, it's sweet. They put too much damn cinnamon in it. It's just overrated. Sorry, Cincinnati people. It's just the the goal he scored though, like he diced up Walker Zimmerman, but I don't think Walker Zimmerman played it even like that poorly. Like he stepped to the ball and like got a foot in. He got a foot and on, it, and it and it didn't matter. It didn't matter because he's just like around him and like like Lino Messi is just on a completely different plane of existence. It is it's just so much fun to watch him. I thought like I thought Nashville, like when you take Messi out of it, which is obviously a lot. I actually thought, yeah, I mean, I thought they were the better team tactically. They did really well sitting back. They let Miami have possession. It wasn't necessarily like a counter press, but like when they chose to press, it worked really well to win the ball back and get them in good positions. Like they had the better chance outside of like the Campana like absurdity to Ended. That was like literally the last kick of regulation. It was this like absurd, like comedy of errors, like chance. I was like, I was just on my feet, like yelling in my apartment, watching that by myself. Like, what the hell is happening? But before that, like, and then Messi hit the post too. I thought Nashville was a better team. I thought Nashville had the better chances. They were a really good team last year. They made the playoffs. They, um, they lost in like the semifinals. Conference, conference um, semis, yeah. Yeah. They're they're a good team again this year. Like FC Cincinnati is probably the class of the league, but I would not be surprised if the Eastern Finals Cincy and Nashville. I mean, they're they're built really well. Um the great CONCACAF flavor to them. There's just like so many, like just ah, CONCACAF remember this guy, like on mm-hmm. that team, which I obviously love. It is How about Dax McCarty being Dax like McCarty for 50? a DC United great. He's like 50 and still just bossing MLS midfields. What he's um you you could put him in like a, a conversation for like one of like the better 
uh, MLS players of all time. Oh, absolutely. Probably top 50, top 50 MLS player. You know, if you'll buy that. He's kind of like a, like a friend, like if the MLS had a hall of fame, like yeah. you could probably like low key. I, put like, him in. I don't, I don't know if yeah. he'd get in, you know what I mean? But he'd be kind of one of those guys that just kind of makes the ballot and you're like, Oh yeah. Dax McCarty. Like he was good for like two decades. Sure. Played college soccer at North Carolina. Go Heels. Played for FC Dallas for five seasons. Was on DC United for 13 games. Then famously got traded for Dwayne DeRosario, who worked out perfectly. He was on New York Red Bulls forever. He was on Chicago Fire for a little bit. And then has been with Nashville since like their inception. Um, two, two supporter shields with Red Bulls. Won the Gold Cup with the U.S. in 2017. He was on the MLS Best 11 in 2015 as well. All-star two times. Yeah, shout out to Dax McCarty. Um, and he traded jerseys with Messi last night. Which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I love in that picture they tweeted, there's like an open Heineken in the background. I don't know oh, if anyone I, else noticed that. Hysterical. So, long day at the office. I'd be, I'd be ripping Heineken too if uh, – Messi just stole, but also like Nashville's in the Champions Cup now, which is huge for them. Like that's a massive moment for that club. Um, also shout out to Giannis Antetokounmpo. I'm a big, big Bucks fan. Bucks and six. I guess he's a part owner of Nashville or whatever. He was on the sideline. That was fun to see. Um, for Miami, it it's remarkable to me. Like obviously, like Messi, Busquets, Alba are so good. They're like Champions League level quality players. But I still think it's remarkable how completely they have turned around Miami. I mean, we said it last time, they're literally in dead last in the MLS standings right now. And they have not been beaten yet. <laughs> They've won literally every single game. So I'm very interested to see how the rest of the MLS season goes because, like, that's about the pace they're going to need to make the playoffs, and it seems unsustainable, but, like, maybe it's not. And then literally this week, they're playing a U.S. Open Cup semifinal against Cincinnati. Yeah, they'll like play the U.S. Ever. Open Cup. Bef- like Messi will play eight matches before he makes his MLS debut. Yeah. In like three different competitions. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, to counter that, like I, I don't I don't I do not think they'll end up making the playoffs. Um, they're going to have to be so perfect over these last I think it's 12 matches that like you're just bound at some point to like drop a game or two or drop points here or there. Cause they're like, these shits aren't going to PKs after, after you draw, like you just right. get one right. point um, and they're bound to play. Like they play Nashville again in a couple weeks. I what. Well, there's no way you can tell me with confidence that they're going to get three points from that match. Right. There's, and there's tons of other matches aside from that, that could keep them from, from getting three points. And like after the grueling competition that was leagues cup, like they're going to face a ton of fixture congestion here. So like you can't guarantee that Jordi Alba or Busquets or even Yedlin or even some of their other great players are going to be able to stay healthy and fresh through all of these matches. So I don't think they'll end up making the playoffs, but at the end of the day, I don't know how much that matters considering when we start the new season, you'll have Messi playing in every major competition in this region. Um, 
Cause to me, that's the most important thing kind of in the long run. Like what, what inner Miami does now the rest of the MLS season, I think is obsolete. I don't think it really matters too, too much. Like you would love to have Messi playing in the playoffs, but I don't, I don't think it's like that big of a deal. If that makes sense. I don't know. I think it would be really cool is if Miami wins the CONCACAF Champions Cup and then plays in the Club World Cup and, like, nicks some teams. Like, if, if like, an, a Messi-led Inter-Miami, like, beats a dysfunctioning Chelsea because they, yes. are, they yes. have a birth, like, that would be hilarious. It would be amazing, actually. Um, I wonder, like, how – I have no idea what the answer to this is. Like, how many years do you think Messi's going to play in MLS? Like, surely he's – like, I mean, he's going to come back for next year. I mean, he's not that old. He's what, so late I, I think – so my belief is he'll play – in the world cup in 2026 and that will be his swan song with argentina mm. like i i believe the 2026 world cup will be his last like competitive matches with argentina and i think he may do like one or two farewells like i think he'll finish his career with barcelona mm. like my long-term belief is he'll play in america through the world cup and then conclude his playing career like he'll play like one like farewell season with Barca, like as a super sub player coach type of awkward role. And that's where now I have, I have no basis to say this <laughs> other than my own gut. So this could be like the vibes for me are high, but this could be completely wrong. Um, I think he'll play through the 2026 world cup and like, December of 2026, he'll he'll get moved on somewhere. And because of the MLS calendar, he could theoretically finish his days with Inter Miami in 2026 and then go retire with Barcelona after a half season as like a January transfer if he wanted to. Barcelona are like such a financial mess. I wonder if that would. It, Messi loves that club so much, and he'll have so much of Apple's stock that he 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 could probably get away with like paying Barcelona to play. That's fair. Um, shall we move on? You you had a, a thought experiment here to to wrap us up. I would love for us to close this this portion, which is our last episode of the summer, with each of us giving three things that we're looking forward to in the next FIFA calendar. And I call the FIFA calendar essentially like it's just, it's technically already started, but we'll say it starts tomorrow now that the women's world cup is finally over. But from August 21 of 2023 until this time in 2024, what are some things you're looking forward to or expecting to see? Um, and I figure we can go back and forth. So you give one, I give one, you give one, I give one, and we could kind of, quickly discuss those things as we go. So if you want to go ahead and start, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have also not talked about these. So hopefully neither of us steals something that the other was going to say, but go ahead. I, uh, I think the number one, my number one draft pick is how the U S men's national team does at Copa America next year. Cause that will really be like the true test of the team before the 26 world cup. I mean, we're hosting, so there's no qualification. You're automatically in. So we're really at a at a disadvantage, at least in terms of competitive matches. Especially, I mean, we got Gold Cups, and this is a podcast founded on the Gold Cup. I fucking love the Gold Cup. But playing against teams like Argentina and Brazil, 
and even you know your Chile, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, like teams that have made the World Cup, Paraguay, Uruguay, playing at that level to test where we're at and get better and get the see where the player pool is at. That's what I'm really looking forward to um, next summer from a U.S. men's national team perspective. Um, hopefully get some Balogun goals, really solidify the lineup. So I'll go away from the U.S. men's national team since you went there. I do have a couple things on them or one of my reasons is on them or things I'm looking forward to is on them. My number one, I think, is I'm fascinated to see who emerges as the, and this is going to be kind of a weird cut, but on the men's side as the sixth best team in CONCACAF. Because with the upcoming World Cup, you already have Mexico, the U.S., and Canada have already qualified. And then there's three auto picks or three not – or not auto picks, but automatic qualifiers. If you win your group – That's your college and, basketball brand yeah, there. Eat, yeah, eat me. Uh, three bursts into the World Cup if you win your group in qualifying. And I think you and I have already established that we think those are going to go to Panama and Jamaica. But who is that sixth team – that emerges is it a guatemala is it an el salvador does costa rica maintain their level up there and i think this next edition of nations league heading into copa america i think is going to tell us a ton about who that could be roughly a year and a half from now once qualifying starts um in the fall of 2025 i think so i guess it's two years from now um i think this summer I think this past summer that we've just been through, I think laid a lot of the foundation of like what the next three years are going to look like as a whole. But I think this next year, I think is going to kind of solidify some of those thoughts that we've had is Guatemala potentially for real. Can El Salvador get their shit together? Does Costa Rica have any generation of players past Joel Campbell that can do anything productive for them? I think we're going to find a lot of those things out over the next year. That's a very good one. And what I hadn't thought about. And like now we got nations league right around the corner in September. And that's like getting me excited for all of that. Cause yeah, I mean, it's, it's more births than CONCACAF has ever had. Obviously it's the biggest world cup ever and every better confederation has more, but an opportunity is there for the taking Guatemala never qualified for a world cup before. It would be really interesting to see if they can take that one. That's a very good one. I like that one a lot. Um, I will say for my next one, I am very interested to watch the 2024 CONCACAF Champions Cup. In the past, the Champions League had not really been a huge priority, I feel like, for teams in the region. Like, MLS teams had very little success in it. Like, Seattle Sounders, like, finally broke through and won. And has a – Seattle Sounders has clinched a Club World Cup berth, which is cool. And I think it's because I'm so, I'm so, so excited for the 2025 Club World Cup that this is a direct qualifier for that. And I think that's going to be really cool because we're going to have like nine or 10, I think MLS teams in the CONCACAF Champions Cup. It'll be nine. Yes. Against then a bunch of league MX teams. And you're going to get some, you know, quality Costa Rican teams like Saprissa or Honduran teams like uh, Olympia in there too. Like that is going to be a really interesting competition for me to see how that plays out with just like, the biggest that competition has ever been, the biggest stakes that competition has ever had. I think that's going to be really fun. 
Uh, my number two, I think, is I am fascinated to see how the women's gold cup hits this mm, this yeah. winter. Um, what stadiums are they gonna play the matches in? <laughs> what is the quality of the competition gonna be like? And I genuinely think like the US women's national team has to win this competition. Like this is a have to win. I don't, I don't care how good Colombia or Brazil may or may not have been at the World Cup. I don't care that Canada tends to play well or that Jamaica's on the rise. Um, you need to be winning this competition and winning a lot of these matches emphatically. Um, like if you get drawn into a group with Costa Rica, uh, Paraguay, and Jamaica, like you need to be getting nine points from nine and finishing that group with like a plus 18 goal difference. Um and, and some of that will lead into my next point, but I'm fascinated to see what that competition looks like, how it hits, what the crowds are like, again, what stadiums are they hosting these matches in? Um, and I hope it's successful. Like I hope it's a great competition that really showcases how far the game in this region has come on the women's side. Um, I hope we get some fun matches. I hope none of the fun matches involve the U.S. And I hope we rip through everybody and win four and five nil every time out. But I know realistically that won't happen. Um, and so I hope that competition is a really, really strong showcase for the women's game in this region. And I hope it is another step in the direction of me getting my dream with the women's game, having a very similar, if not the same calendar as the men. Yeah, I mean, first ever W Gold Cup. Yeah, I think it's exciting times for the women's game in this region. It is never a bad thing to get more real competitive matches to see the U.S. Women's National Team. I'm very excited for that competition as well. The uh, the qualifying for that is essentially the format of like what the Men's Nations League is. Yes, um, super exciting. Super and cool. So I think you and I are going to be following that this fall. Ball, and we're probably going to podcast about that. So I'm very excited to see that as well. And just like for the other teams in the region to get just more competitive games and hopefully raise their level. And, you know, maybe the next Marta Cox is out there, you know, somewhere in Belize or Nicaragua. Well, and or all of those matches will be on Paramount Plus as well. Like Paramount is like running the coverage of the women's gold cup. And I think they're going to do a phenomenal job. And again, I think the exposure for some of those other countries that don't get the chance a to play competitive matches. And now they're going to get to do it on some brand of like worldwide television, I think is even cooler. Paramount plus subscription that you and I split is uh super worth it. Get all the champion. You like you wait for champions League stuff too. Indeed. Um, Maybe we'll get sponsored one day um, after we yeah. should talk their rival. Absolutely. My So my third thing, I don't know if this counts as a cop out. I'm going to say the Olympics as a whole. So both Couldn't the women. More. Couldn't agree more. To hopefully rebound from the World Cup. And like, if not, if not a gold, like I feel like you got to get a medal of some color at this Olympics. It'd I think you got to make the see. final. I think you got to make the final. Yeah. Like, I think like they who's need the to coach win. Gonna be? Yes. Like, who's the coach going to be? What's the roster going to look like? Like, I'm assuming like, Rapino's done. 
Like, is Morgan done or is Ertz done too? Like, is this like finally the moment where we're like kind of ripping the band aid off of the previous generation? And like, is Ashley Sanchez going to actually see the field? Is like, like, are we going to play all of our best players on the field at one time? Like, can we rebound? I mean, because like we just saw at this Women's World Cup, the rest of the world is starting to get really good. Like, Spain is probably the gold medal favorite. England is good as hell. Sweden is good. Australia is good. Like, what does the U.S. Women's National Team do at the Olympics? That is one thing. And also for the men, this is the first time the U.S. men have been at an Olympics since Beijing in 08. I was about to start high school. And I am I had graduated staring down from 30 fifth now. Grade. I had graduated from elementary school. So I'm just ecstatic for the U.S. just to be back at the Olympics. But I'll also say, like, our youth teams are at a level they probably have not ever been at. Like, we are just, like, chock full of young talent now. Very excited just to see who shows up there. It's such a weird tournament that it's because it's under 23. You don't get that at the Olympics in literally any other sport, not even like the women's well, side you of the get, sport. Well, but like, you get what three, three players that don't have to fit that criteria. Right. But are they even going to use that? I feel like a lot of times they don't even bother. They just like, just send a full youth team anyways. Um, well, that regardless. my counter, to, well, not even counter, but to build off of that point is like, I'm also fascinated by the Olympics mainly on the men like yes i'm f- super fascinated with the women's team like can they rebound and have a successful tournament and ideally make it to that final match and can they win the coin flip i, I don't know but on the men's side like what does that team look like and what players from that team end up making an impact 3 years from now and 2 years yep. from then like like does a jesus ferreira get another crack at being the number two or three choice striker does do we give that role to Brandon Vasquez in a tournament like that how do we like Paxton Aronson I'm assuming will get some run in that competition and leading up to that how are those players going to be integrated into friendlies against Ghana and Oman and Uzbekistan in this coming year how are those players integrated in the January camp I, I don't know. I mean, and and to me, having a second tournament to be able to throw some of those younger players into adverse situations, I'm hopeful will be something that um, will provide the U.S. Soccer Federation with players who have not only been there for this upcoming World Cup, but for 2030 and 2034 as well. I mean, like this is a chance to really establish something in the long term, not just right now um my final note on the olympics i agree with everything you just said the other Concacaf participant is the dominican republic you know the baseball country yeah yeah the dominican republic is gonna play in the olympics they have never even qualified for the gold cup let alone the world cup forget the world cup that's absurd like the regional championship that now has 16 teams and has like a prelim round before that, they haven't even, they haven't even been in the prelim round ever. And they're about to play at an Olympics and Nations League. They have been in League B for every single iteration, always League B. And they're going to play at the Olympics. Fat, I mean, I like because of the U23 factor, 
of the only you just get like random teams. So far, here are just the teams in general that are qualified for the Olympics on the men's side. France is the host nation. Got the U.S. and the Dominican Republic from CONCACAF. UEFA, you got Spain. Ukraine, who is still actively in a war in Israel. And then Africa, you got Egypt, Morocco, and Mali. Shout out to Mali. And then a bunch of us like still yet to qualify. So just like the chaos of the Olympics in general, I'm also looking forward to. Uh, your final thing that you're looking forward to this upcoming year. Sorry, I also pulled up that Wikipedia. So I so no no no, I wasn't gonna say anything. I was just fascinated to actually look at it. So give me a second to get my train of thought back. Oh, um, this is a very big picture thing. <laughs> I don't know how much sense it's gonna make, but like I think I'm mainly just fascinated to see us soccer as a whole progress over the next year so on the men's side like we 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 believe that this 11 that won the nation's league back in june is going to be this group that's going to take us into the stratosphere they've only played together twice and that was without tyler adams and tim ream as well so like how often is that group going to play together? Because you'll note that Gio Reyna can't stay healthy enough to get on the field for Dortmund right now. Tyler Adams, I think, just signed with Bournemouth like today, maybe. Um, there aren't many players seemingly getting regular minutes at the top flight outside of Matt Turner. I'm assuming Christian Pulisic will. I'm assuming McKinney and Wea will for Juventus. Like, I think all Ricardo of this, Pippi did score in the Champions League for PSV. For PSV, sure. But I am fascinated to see. Like, I think we just like Florian Balogun doesn't even have a club yet. Like, he's still like yeah. in the bowels of Arsenal. Um, and so, like, overall on the men's side, like, who performs in this club season? Who stays healthy? Because the team that won Nations League, the squad that we have available for Copa America, again, if we even make yes we'll likely make it there but we still have to qualify for it like we have to handle our business in november in nations league to get there even though we're hosting the fucking tournament um so that's my biggest thing on the men's side is how does the roster progress and what does this new age under greg burhalter for the second time look like and then on the and then on the women's side who are we gonna hire like who who are we going to hire to take over that job and are they prepared to really try to actually fully utilize the talent that that program has had since its inception um and 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 I think if all of those things go in a positive direction I believe going into this year there should be an expectation that we are winning three of the five major competitions that we're going to be entering this year, right? Like, like the men should be winning nations league and ideally making the semis at the very least. I think they should be making the final of Copa America and should be putting together some level of a good showing into the knockouts of the Olympics. And then on the women's side, like I think there needs to be an expectation that they win both of those competitions 
that they win the gold cup and they win the Olympics and win gold in, in France, like that should be the expectation. And I think if all of those things happen, then I think hopefully a year from now, we're looking back on the last year and saying, okay, U S soccer did everything it was supposed to do. And even though the ship may not be completely righted in the right direction, or at least heading in that way, in the way that in the direction and shape that we need to be. That was a long monologue. I I hope I synthesized that correctly, but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I just rambled. A lot to look forward to. Um, you and I have made 12 of these podcasts in like two months, which is crazy. So we're going to take like a little bit of a break, but we are going to be back and we're going to be talking about CONCACAF Nations League group stage this fall. Both the men and the women, the U.S. national teams have friendlies. We got qualifying, like we mentioned, for the CONCACAF W Gold Cup. And we got some other random club competitions. We got some U.S. Open Cup. We got some Caribbean Cup. We got some Central American Cup. We're going to, if it's obscure, we're going to find it and talk about it. Um, exciting stuff. Looking forward to the fall, though. Maybe a little bit more sporadic in our podcasting. We will still be a constant presence in your life with nonsense. Yeah. I I couldn't have said it any better. Um, I, I will say to the people that do listen, thank you for listening. I think this summer for Andy and I has been a massive learning curve of, of figuring out what to prioritize, how to talk about these matches in a way that gives you all the details you need while being able to cover everything as we need to. Um, like Andy said, we're going to take a little bit of time off for our own quote-unquote summer break. We'll be back very soon with a ton of content, and we're going to do a much better job, hopefully, of covering the club side of things, giving you an inside look into the Champions Cup, hopefully next year actually covering League's Cup. So when Lionel Messi is scoring bangers and winners against Cruz Azul, we're actually talking about it when it happens and not weeks later. But um Thank you again, everybody, for listening. I think this has been a great summer, and we're really excited for the things we have coming down the pike. Any final thoughts, Andy? Uh, soccer is the best. Sure. It is indeed. Well, for those of you that may be listening, thank you for listening. No matter how, where you may be listening, thank you for making us a part of your day, afternoon, night, evening, whatever it may be. My name is Don Palumbo with my esteemed and much smarter colleague, Andy Lemon, this is Because Conca Calf. Have a great couple of weeks off, everybody, and we'll see y'all very soon. See you.